When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. We have launched a new series on Wealth Track on next generation investors to introduce ourselves and you to the younger portfolio managers working alongside today's investment greats. As part of that series, we are doing one on one podcasts with the less well known but deserving partners. Our guest today is Samantha McLemore. She is portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners who has been working with legendary investor Bill Miller since graduating from college in 2002. And you all might remember Miller set the record of beating the S&P for 15 consecutive years with his then-flagship Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund from 1991 to 2005. McLemore has climbed from analyst at Miller's former firm Leg Mason to assistant portfolio manager on his Leg Mason Opportunity Trust Fund in 2008 and full-fledged co-portfolio manager in 2014. Since the market bottom in 2009, Opportunity Trust has beaten the S&P by an impressive margin. It's delivered better than 20% annualized returns versus the S&P's 17% annualized returns. So, Samantha, welcome to WealthTrack. Congratulations on Opportunity Trust performance. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it was trial by fire when you became assistant portfolio manager of Miller Opportunity Trust in the midst of the financial crisis in 2008. What was the major lesson you learned from that experience? Uh, You aren't kidding, Consuelo. So I became assistant portfolio manager in August of 2008, which was right before things got terrible, especially in September. I think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were seized in August and then uh, Lehman Brothers went bust in September. So it was definitely a great learning experience, not necessarily a fun one, but a great one. And there were so many lessons that came out of that experience on so many different levels. I mean, we could spend the entire time talking about uh, just that. Maybe one of the main lessons that came out of that was just how much behavior matters and how much it changes. And I think that we see that playing through in the markets overall, even today. But it was a great way to live it and really experience it. So um, I was an analyst and then an assistant portfolio manager at a value shop. And we were all about value. When prices go down, values get better as long as they're going down faster than the the underlying fundamentals. So we experienced that in in a very real way, although the fundamentals did deteriorate during that time. But it was just so interesting to watch the behavior of groups of people and analysts and see how pessimism really was at its peak, sort of at the lowest prices. And it was, I guess, people were so much more optimistic when prices were so much higher. Um, So you got a real sense of why people do what they do when they sell uh, 
low and buy high, which is exactly the opposite of what uh, we're trying to do. Right. It's so interesting because I'm just trying to envision this. You were, you know, six years out of college. Uh, you were working with, a, you know, a legendary portfolio manager, Bill Miller. And yet I'm sure at Leg Mason at the time, just like the rest of the world, um, there must have been a real change in their behavior, their attitude. There must have been a lot of questioning about what they were doing. So that must have been really interesting to see as well, to see the change that is occurring in a firm of investment professionals, right? Uh, totally. So we, you know, we were value investors. So we liked things more typically after prices went down, but then for so long that kept being the wrong call and that would cause pain because you would lose money. And so one of the things that uh, sayings that we're fond of um, recalling is that the vast majority of the world are price and momentum investors and they like things more as prices and momentum is good and they like things uh, less as those things are bad. And then there's a small segment of people who are you know, more price and value uh, investors. So you really do like things more as prices fall. And we thought we had a group of people um, that were the latter. But after having that be such a painful experience for so long, you really watched how that changed and evolved. And so there were a lot of times where during that period, analysts would decide that they didn't like stocks at their lows and right. um, decide that that's when the risk was highest and we had to sell. And these were all very smart people who had been trained in a way that follows our process. So I think the conclusion partially coming out of that was how important it is to find people who truly do have that price and value gene. And we have a much smaller team now, partially because of that. Right. So for our listeners who are not familiar with Miller Value Partners, which was founded in 1999, but became fully independent in 2017, you are long-term value investors. You're, you're a smaller team <laughs> at Miller Value Partners, now independent, as I said. And that can mean a lot of different things to different people. So let's talk about what it means at Miller Value Partners. And you describe yourselves in your literature as having five pillars of investment approach. And so I want to run through them one by one. The first one is that, that you are valuation-based. So what does that mean? Yeah, so we describe ourselves as long-term value investors, and uh, both of those are extremely important. So the valuation piece is that we're really trying to value businesses. So there's a lot of people who might trade stocks, uh, but they don't really try to understand the intrinsic value, as Buffett calls it, or the underlying fundamental value of the businesses. So we try to think like owners and really think about if we owned this entire business, what would the value be? And there's a big focus on the free cash flows of the business, what the present value of those free cash flows are. So all of our analysis, everything we're trying to do is focused around understanding that. And long-term, again, can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, especially in this very short-term oriented world. So how long-term are you if you're looking at actually, you know, we are owning businesses, we're not owning stocks. What's long-term? So long-term to us, we on average hold names between three and five years, but there's some names that we've owned for multiple decades. So Amazon is an example of the name in the fund that we've owned. It predates me. So it's been almost two decades now that we've owned that. And that would be the ideal um, holding period for the fund if we could find more names like that. 
And we think that this re is really important in this environment. One of my favorite things that, uh, you know, Bill has said is in his 40 plus year investment career, it's never been easier to construct a portfolio that you have conviction will do well um, over the long term, call it five years. And it's never been harder over the short term, call it three to six months, because that end of the time horizon is just so hyper efficient. So this is both an important part of our approach. And I think something that helps us deliver the long term returns we're trying to uh, deliver for our shareholders. Do you buy what Bill says that it's never been easier to construct a long term portfolio? What's different about today? I, I definitely see in the market that there is, you know, a lot of people talk about this time arbitrage element where people just are so focused on the short term. And I think the best example of this is uh, we have sell side analysts who have coverage universes of companies and they come in to meet with us. Um, pretty frequently. And I will always ask them the same question, which is, we're long-term, we're value-oriented, what's the best idea you have? And they'll invariably give me a name that has 25 to 30% upside and some catalyst that will make it work over the next three to six months. And then I'll look at their coverage list and I'll see a name that you know, has a price target that's twice where the stock is trading. And I'll say, well, what about this one? And they'll say, oh, yes, well, if you can hold it for five years, that one's really attractive, but there's this big uncertainty that's out there now. It's unclear when it's going to resolve. So, uh, you know, it doesn't act that well in the short term. And I think that there's a reason that they don't mention those names, even though they know we're long term, they know we're value oriented. It's because the demand is very low and there's such a huge part of the market that wants low volatility. They want month to month assured performance. Right. And so that's where people are operating. They're trying to deliver on that. And that leaves this big open space at the longer time horizon, more tolerant of volatility. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't look pretty in the short term on a month to month basis. But if you can invest in that way, I think you have better odds of achieving success over the long term. That's really interesting. Contrarian. I mean, you kind of almost explained how you're contrarian. Explain what that means at Miller Value Partners. Right. Well, we don't try to be contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian, but uh, we are contrarian. And so what that means is we look for ideas where other people you know, find, um, you know, things not as appealing. So we right. tend to look for ideas on the 52-week low list or if a company is, is shrouded in controversy, it's fertile hunting grounds. If no one else is there, then I think it's more likely that you'll find mispricing. So that's where we spend a lot of time looking for new ideas. And what's one of the most contrarian positions that you have uh, at Opportunity Trust now? Is there a name that stands out to you? That is actually an easy one to answer at this current time, um, and it's a painful one in the short term, but we own some of these generic companies, and they're all over the headlines for uh, the legal risk on the opioid, um, on the opioids. And right, so, so generic drug companies. Uh -huh. Exactly. And so because of all this headline and litigation risk, those stocks have just been terrible this year. So Endo Pharmaceuticals is down, you know, 50% year to date. Teva's down almost 50%. Uh, Malincroft's down almost 50%. And that's just over a six month period. And the amazing thing is we've done work. We've talked to legal experts. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty here about what the ultimate liability will be. 
Uh, but at these prices, it looks like all but the worst case scenario is more than priced in. So you have these companies, Mallinckrodt trades at one times earnings, uh, Endo trades at two times earnings, Teva trades at three times earnings. I think it's a great example because people just don't want to get in front of this potential risk, even if you can see historical precedents that would imply that stocks have a lot of upside from here. Endo's market cap's 800 million and it's gonna generate 800 million in free cash flow next year. But no one will care until there's some clarity around this issue. So in the short term, it can be really painful to own these names because they keep making new lows. And every time you buy any of them, it's the wrong decision immediately. But I think if you can extend your time horizon and look out, three years, it's highly likely that uh, these companies will be worth more than where they're trading today because uh, it's pricing in almost the worst case scenario, which is unlikely to um, occur. It takes nerves of steel just listening to you, Samantha, <laughs> to be there. But at any rate, uh, look, the proof is in the pudding and long term, the performance has been terrific. Uh, two more pillars of the five, non-traditional inputs. Uh, what kind of non-traditional inputs are you all paying attention to? So we talk about how um, if you read what everyone else reads and only use the same inputs that everyone else uses, then it's going to be difficult to have different outputs. So right. we're always trying to read very broadly, not just stuff that's you know, related in a very linear fashion to what we own, but things outside that area. Um, I think the best example of this is Bill's long-term involvement with the Santa Fe Institute, uh, which is a research group that's been involved with research on complex adaptive systems. And he would attribute uh, some of his learnings over the years um, there to some of the successes. And I think that he was early on Bitcoin and Santa Fe had held some interesting, uh, you know, research days with interesting speakers on that. So it continues to be an area where you can get differentiated views on any number of things. And the last pillar is flexible. So when we talk about flexible, we view our job as making money for our clients. So we don't want to get dogmatic about doing things a certain way, because if the, the only thing that, you know, is continuous about markets is that they change. And so we want to be understanding and we want to evolve our approach over time as things change in markets so that we are always trying to improve what we do. One of your uh, guiding principles, which you actually say is the key to performance, is that there is a difference between investment fundamentals and expectations. I think we've touched on it a little bit, but just explain what you mean about that and why it's so key. So most of what you hear, if you listen to any of the television shows or the pundits or stock analysts, it's almost all about the fundamentals. But it's important, and I think most people know that you can have a great company that can be a terrible investment if you pay more than what that company is worth. And on the other side, you can have a pretty mediocre company become a great investment if expectations are low enough and things turn out better than what's priced in. A lot of people don't make that distinction between what are the fundamentals versus what is the market pricing in. And we try to get explicit uh, when we're looking at companies and at businesses about what needs to occur um, for this stock price to be right. What's the market 
pricing in? And then do we think, sometimes that's an easier question, do we think that's obtainable? Do we think it's too optimistic, too pessimistic? It's an interesting debate from how the Ben Graham approach to value investing, how it's evolved with Warren Buffett, and uh, where at one point there was a cigar butt theory where you'd buy a a stock that was incredibly cheap. It might not be a, a good company, but you'd buy it and just get that last puff out of the cigar butt and then <laughs> sell it. I mean, Warren Buffett kind of took that to uh, another level, which was, look, I'm willing to buy a, a good company at a fair price rather than a fair company um, at a really low price, that he would rather buy the good company. W- where do you all come out on, on that? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think, um, you know, people talk about diversification a lot. um, And that can mean a lot of different things. But one of the ways that we've talked about it is diversifying between secularly mispriced names. um, So those names like Amazon, where uh, they can continue to compound value over very long periods of time. Now, those are difficult to find. But if you can identify those, they can be the very best investments because you can make um, a lot of money over a very long time horizon. So we talk about diversifying between those secularly mispriced and then cyclically mispriced, which is the more classic, something's out of favor in the short term and and the price is lower than uh, the value. So we look at both those kinds of names and depending on what opportunities the market is serving up, it will, you know, that will be reflected in our portfolio overall. But we do think about having different kinds of investments, which we think helps the diversification of the portfolio. Right. So there's where the flexibility comes in as well. Considering the backdrop that we're in, it is kind of stunning. I know you've you've had some uh, research on this, uh, that in the midst of the longest bull market in U.S. history, that investors have been pulling money out of the stock market and pouring it into bonds. I think some of the figures that I got from uh, Miller Value Partners was that the fund flows $441 billion has gone out of the equity markets uh, in the last decade, and uh, you know, $1.7 trillion has gone into bonds. And there have been six pullbacks of more than 10% in this decade. What were you doing while investors were pulling out? Is that the kind of opportunity that you see? Uh, and I know one of the things that you say is that volatility can be your friend as well which uh, a lot of people are very nervous uh, when they consider volatility. Yeah, it is one of the stunning things. I mean, I don't think, so we talked earlier about the financial crisis and the huge impact that that had on all types of investors. And and I think that that plays into what we've seen in this post-financial crisis period. So we've been over a decade of you know very strong market returns, 17% a year, which is much higher than the average overall. And yet uh, people have been taking money out the entire time and you haven't really seen that before. Usually if you've had uh, returns that strong for that long, people would get more optimistic. But I think that that speaks to just how bad things were in the financial crisis. And so I think one of the ways that we've done well in this period, of extreme risk aversion and extreme, um, you know, volatility phobia, where people don't want to go anywhere near anything where they might lose money, is if we identify a situation uh, where the perceived risk is high, but our assessment of the real risk is lower, those have been some of the best opportunities to make money. And so we've been pretty systematic about, you know, investing in those sort of names. Mm-hmm. 
I know one of the the uh, companies in your portfolio among your top holdings or top ten at any rate is Facebook. Tell us about Facebook, what, why it's now in the Opportunity Trust portfolio. Yes, and I think that that's a perfect example because we did own that. Um, you know, we owned it, we've owned it for a number of years, but it wasn't a, a big position. And then we really ramped uh, that position and added to the name on the back of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which hit in March of uh, 2018. And the stock, you know, dropped 20%, and that knocked a hundred billion in market value off of the company. And at the same time, uh, you know, Bill and I, I remember this so well, it was in April of last year because we were traveling in Europe and meeting with clients and prospects. And so we were using Facebook as an example because it was something that we had recently built up and we thought it was a great example there, trading at a market multiple with a much better competitive position than most companies in the market, uh, you know, much better growth. And we'd talk about this every day when we woke up, there'd be a new headline on how horrible things were and the risk and some new aspect of the scandal. And we couldn't find one investor who thought it was a good idea to be buying it. And of course, if you fast forward, the the stocks outperformed a lot, but with a lot of volatility. So I think through the end of last month, it was up close to 10% and the market was up close to 6%. So significant outperformance, but there's been volatility along the way. And I think the reaction that we got in terms of everyone saying definitely not a good idea, too uncertain, too much risk, I think that, that speaks to the sorts of opportunities that we find in, in this market. And Facebook is one of the bigger names in the portfolio now. It's still something that we think is extremely attractive, uh, you know, trading at 18 times next year's own earnings, coming out with innovative new things, having a great return on capital and great growth potential still in the business. I think on the regulatory side, there is some risks there, but uh, most things that could happen would actually probably uh, help Facebook's value rather than hurt it. Has there been a time in the last, you know, 10 years when you really questioned Bill's approach and uh, his ability to find opportunity when, um, you know, basically when blood is running in the streets, as a Rothschild famously said, when you've lost your nerve. There's certainly times, anyone in the markets, there there comes times where you're losing money and you can feel it emotionally and right. say, like, I'm not sure we should be doing this anymore. There's never been a time, actually, when I've question the overall approach. I remember you would think the financial crisis, if anything, would have done that. Right. And I remember sitting around the table with Bill and other, you know, notable value investors. I think it was in October of 2008. And they were talking about how bad it was um, and kind of a disbelief at how bad it had gotten. And even then, I remember thinking, this is a great opportunity. So I always thought I just I was born in a way where I thought think I believe lower prices are better. Um, so I've never questioned the approach on a longer term basis, but certainly on a shorter term basis. You know, these generic companies we talked about before, the pain can be extreme when you buy something or you own something and it goes down every day. But typically, I've learned that when I'm when I start to feel that way, when I feel like I can't take any more of this. Usually that's a signal that we're getting closer to a bottom. And usually I've, I've observed with Bill and we joke when he gets to that point where he is saying, you know, I just, I 
can't take these price declines anymore, that is usually a signal that we're at the lows too, because we have pain tolerances that I think are higher than most people out there. So if we're getting to that point, so that's what I'll tell myself in the dark days when, <laughs> when it's feeling like that. <laughs> Spoken like a true value investor. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the uh, capacity to suffer is why there are so <laughs> few value investors out there. <laughs> Um, at any rate, Samantha McLemore, what a treat to talk to you. So thanks so much for joining us on Wealth Track. And Samantha McLemore is the co-portfolio manager of Miller Opportunity Trust, which has been beating the market for the last decade. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you. Next week, we continue our exclusive Next Generation Investor Series with Bill Miller, this time with his son, Bill Miller IV who oversees the Miller Income Strategy portfolios with some key differences. An important part of our success is connecting with you on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for engaging with us. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. Mm -hmm.